And so tonight I want to give to you two introductions. First of all, an introduction to the Bible itself as a whole. And then secondarily, an introduction to the book of Genesis, which of course is the first book in the Bible. Now many people ask the question, they say, well, where does the word even, the Bible, come from? We're acquainted with it, especially in the United States of America, from the time that we're just small children, whether it be in a hotel room where we open up a drawer and we see the title of a book that just says, The Bible. Or whether we come to a church, a strange building that smells just a little bit different than everywhere else that we're used to, and we see behind, tucked into the seat in front of us there, a book, and we pull it out, and if it doesn't say hymns, it says the Bible. And the question is, what is the Bible? The word Bible, very simply, it just means the book. And that's exactly what the Bible is. It is the book. It's not a book of many, but it is the book of all books. Someone has turned the name Bible into an acronym, B-I-B-L-E, to stand for the words basic instructions before leaving earth. <laughs> and although that's not what the Bible was intended to be when it was called the Bible, that's a very good assessment and summary of what the Bible actually is. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. And it is set apart above every other book and every other thing because of what it is, what it represents, what it says, and what it gives to us and adds to us. The Bible defines itself in these terms. First of all, the Word of God. So sometimes you'll hear us up here as we're teaching, or you'll hear us when we're talking, or you as a Christian might say, well, the Word of God says. And you might say, well, what does that mean that the Word of God says? Well, it's just a synonymous term speaking again of the Bible. So we say the Word of God. Why? Because it tells us in the Bible that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, that it is God-breathed. And so every word of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation chapter 22 is inspired or breathed out by God. These are God's words, the things that God has said. And therefore, the Bible is the word of God. We also call it the sacred scriptures or the holy scriptures or just the scriptures. And so again, sometimes you'll hear us say, you'll hear us say, well, it says in scripture... And when we're talking about scripture, we're not just talking about ancient rabbinic writings or traditional uh, folklore that's been recorded over the centuries and years, but scripture is set apart from all writings in that it is the Bible. They are one and the same. And it is also called, by itself, it is called truth. And that's a very valuable way to look at the Bible. Oftentimes, it's referred to as truth. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And not just there, but many times the Bible is referred to as the truth. Why? Because every word that God says is true. And we can stand upon it. We can believe it. We can be assured of it. And we can build our lives upon it because the Bible is absolutely true. I love the way God uses the word poetically. When he talks about his own word or when he talks about the Bible, he uses many objects that we can relate to in everyday life 
as an illustration to help us know the value of what his word actually is. He tells us in here that his word or the Bible is like a sword. It's like a sword that cuts and divides. It divides truth from error. It divides the flesh from the spirit. It divides the world from heaven. It divides good from evil. The word is something that divides. It divides even our attitudes and it divides our lives down to the very core of what we are. The word of God has power to divide. And thus God says his word is like a sword. He also says his word is like a fire. Jeremiah said it was like a fire, the word of God that was shut up in his bones and that he was weary of trying to hold it in to the point where he no longer could because of the fire that the word produced within his life. What does a fire do? The fire consumes everything that's consumable and it refines everything that's valuable. And so the word of God in our lives will consume all of what we are that shouldn't be and it will refine everything in our lives that's of value and that should be. So the word of God likened unto a fire. God also likens his word unto bread that nourishes. The Bible says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The manna that fell in the wilderness in the days of Moses, likened unto the word that God gives to you and I, the Bible that we possess and can read. It's spiritual food that nourishes us, that builds us up, that feeds us, that causes us to become mature in our relationship with God and in our spiritual development. And so the word of God likened unto bread. The word of God also likened unto gold that gives richness and wealth. David said that it is more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. That is, the word of God is more valuable than gold. The thing that is sought after the most by the people that live within this world all the way from the days of history into the present day, yet God says that his word in our lives will enrich us to a greater degree than even the thing that carries the most earthly value the word of God is likened unto gold. The word is also likened unto light. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Again, the psalmist declares, and he says, that the entrance in or the entering in of your word bringeth light. The word of God likened unto light that gives us vision for our path. It helps us to understand the context of the world that we're living in. It helps us to see the path that we're walking individually. It helps us to understand our life and our existence and why we're here and what we're here for and where we're going. And those things that are to the world such a haze and such a source of confusion, to the person who loves God's word, those questions are answered because the word of God becomes a light that brings illumination to the path. The word of God also likened unto honey. What is honey? It's something that is sweet. It's flavorful. It brings satisfaction. It brings delight. And thus the word of God brings sweetness into a life. It brings satisfaction. It brings delight. There's something about it that opens up our eyes and that gives us strength and energy for the day or for the moment. The word of God likened unto honey. 
The word of God in the prophet Jeremiah is also likened unto a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Jeremiah, speaking by the Spirit of God, says, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And there's times that our heart, hardened like a stone, needs to be crushed and brought down. Sometimes things within our lives that are so difficult and so hard, we think that they can never be removed. But the Word of God has the hammer effect in our lives. And when we bring the Word of God into even the hardest places of our heart, it has the power to break those things apart and to soften and remove and replace them with things that are of value. And finally, but really not exhaustively, the Word of God is likened unto a seed that germinates, grows roots, and then bears fruit upward. And thus, as we sow the Word of God and let the seed effect of the Word wash over us, sink down past our mind and into our hearts, it takes root there and it begins to form a spiritual life within us that brings forth then the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and meekness and gentleness and self-control that God says are possessed by Him alone. And thus the Word of God, this valuable thing that God has given to us, that possesses power and does all of these things within our life. The Bible is the most influential book that exists. I will not say that was written because the Bible was not written. The Bible was inspired and the Bible was recorded. It was not written. And in that, it is the most influential book that ever was. It has outsold, outlasted, and outran every other thing that has ever been produced or has ever come across the planet, and it will continue to all the way through until the end. In fact, Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And so the word of God, influential and lasting. It's an interesting thing to consider, but Voltaire, the 18th century French playwright and uh, influential man in his day that sought very much to silence the voice of Christianity and the Bible specifically, and he was known as being a hater of the Word of God, a hater of the Bible, he declared openly and he said, I promise you that the Bible will be extinct in 100 years. He died in 1788. <laughs> well, the Bible has outlasted his prediction, and ironically, the house that he died in this day today is a distribution center for the Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> so the very man who declared that the Bible would become extinct, now his house is a distribution center for the very thing that he hated oh so much. George Washington said concerning the Bible, he said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. A man who understood the value of God's word. Abraham Lincoln, several years later, said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Henry Van Dyke, the great American novelist and clergyman, said, Born in the East and clothed in Oriental form and imagery, the Bible walks the ways of the world with familiar feet, and enters land after land to find its own everywhere. It has learned to speak in hundreds of languages to the heart of man. 
Children listen to its stories with wonder and delight, and wise men ponder them as parables of life. The wicked and the proud tremble at its warnings, but to the wounded and penitent, it has a mother's voice. And Mahatma Gandhi, a man who himself was not even a Christian, said this concerning the Bible that you and I hold in our hand. He said, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. A man who didn't even believe the words that he was speaking about and yet understood the power of it, nevertheless, very self-condemning words spoken of by Gandhi. Everywhere in the world that the Bible has gone, it has brought blessing, it's brought freedom, and it has brought spiritual and physical prosperity with it. And I can testify, even in my own life, that all of these things hold out absolutely true. The greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life was when on a, on a particular morning, during a particular season, when I'd hit the rock bottom place, I took a Bible and I just went like this, and I opened it up and it fell open to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And I just began reading right there. And the thing that happened in my heart and in my life from the time that I read those words to the present day are things beyond any words that I could explain to you and the things that God has done in me and the things that God has done in every one of us. The word of God, the most profitable thing that God has left for us on the planet. Well, according to the Bible itself, what is its purpose? What is the self-declared purpose of the Bible, the reason why God says he's given, given it to us, if we were to boil that down to its simplest form? Well, very primarily, the reason why God has given us the Bible is as a form of a revelation of God from himself to man. God wants us to know him. That's the desire and the intent of our creator. He didn't set the world in motion and then bring our lives into being, into bearing on this planet just so we could stumble to and fro wondering who he is without any hope or ability or way or means whereby we might know who he is. God wants us to know him and he's given us the Bible as the means of that revelation. In John chapter 17 Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, which is the prayer that's recorded for us, the entire chapter, John 17, is Jesus' final prayer before he went to heaven. He tells us that part of the purpose of his coming, he says in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, and this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says... In verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which you've given me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given me are from you. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and have surely known that I came out from you. And they have believed that you did send me. And then in verse 14, Jesus declares again. He says, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so the Bible declares to us that the very reason why the word 
was given to us. And then the word incarnate in the person of Christ was primarily so that we might know God. He wants us in a relationship with him. He wants us intimately familiar with his person. And he has given us the Bible that we might do that. The second reason why God has given us the Bible, not only as a revelation of himself to man, but also as a revelation of man to himself. That we might truly know ourselves. That we might have answers to the four most important questions that every human being has. Who am I? Where am I from? Why am I here? And where am I going when my body dies? God doesn't want us in the dark concerning our own very existence. And so he gave us the word of God that we might have a context for our own lives, that we might understand why we exist, who we are, where we came from, what our purpose is, and where we're going when we die. He wants us to know our origin. He wants us to know our substance and what we're made of, and he wants us to know our purpose. And thus God has given to us in the Bible the answers to all of those questions that lie deep in the roots of all that we are. He wants us to know ourselves. The Bible also doesn't hide from us the truth about ourselves that we might not like. There are things about us, isn't there, that we discover as we grow in the Lord that we don't necessarily like and that we wish weren't there. But God tells us the truth about those things nevertheless. I think of that famous verse in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 where it says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. And who could know it? Because we think our heart is essentially and primarily good. But God says, I see something altogether different. God tells us concerning ourselves through the prophet Isaiah that our most righteous acts, the things that we do that are the most good, when compared with his holiness, are like filthy rags in his presence. And that isn't flattering to our self-esteem when we hear those things. Because we think sometimes that we're pretty good. But when God weighs our motives and sees the reason why we do what we do and what drives us. And then he compares that with the perfection that he is. He declares that the truth about us emphatically is that we're not as good as we think we are. And you might think, well, why would I want to know that? And the reason why you'd want to know that is because it provides the context for God's salvation. It shows us that we need a savior And it drives us to find that the answer for that salvation is provided again by God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Unless we know the truth about ourselves, it's impossible for us to come to the truth about God and about Jesus Christ and his love. And thus God gives us his word, not only that we might know him, but that we might truly know ourselves. And then thirdly, God gives us his word as a revelation of truth to the world. There is a whole world of truth that's given to us in the Bible that is useful to us and necessary to us that we might conduct our lives successfully and navigate them successfully in the world in which we live. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes to us and he says that God has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness while we're walking through this world. And part of what we need for life and godliness is we need truth. In a world that's filled with talking heads and voices and facts and things and opinions and theories, 
There has to be a voice of truth that speaks louder than all of those other things that we might know what actually is versus what actually might be. And God gives that to us in his word, and he tells us that his word, the Bible, is the source of all truth. If he says it, then we can stand on it emphatically, and we can know that what we're reading, hearing, receiving, that it is absolutely accurate. Now, God does not tell us every single fact that there is to know in the universe in the Bible. But what he does give us is everything that we need. There are some things that we'll never know. In fact, God tells us that. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed are given to us and to our children forever. And so there's some things that God has not given us, but everything that we need, he has given us, and everything that's here, we can stand on as absolute truth. And so I would encourage you, as we begin a study of Genesis and a study of the Bible, that you would come to your own conclusion in your heart and mind as to whether or not you can believe that the Bible is trustworthy. And if you can say, yes, God, I believe, Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, that every word is true, then make that the concrete declaration of your worldview and your ideal. That if God says it, then I'm going to believe it, and that is fact in my life, even if I don't understand it yet. And I'll build everything else off of there. And I would encourage you, even here tonight, right now, if you haven't done this already, that in the invisible filing processing room of your mind, that you would begin a file right now, just a manila envelope that's completely blank, and write on the heading, write, write on the heading, wait for more information. And when you hear something that you don't understand, or you come across a scripture that doesn't make sense, or you hear something that's so totally outrageous sounding that you wonder, could that actually be true? Don't discount it. Just put it in that file, the wait for more information file, and tuck it away somewhere in your mind. And here's what I can guarantee you, because I've had one of these for years, is that it won't take long before you hear the supplemental information or read the supplemental scripture or get the supplemental wisdom that makes sense of what you previously placed in the wait for more information file. And then you could take it out of there and you could put it in, okay, now I understand where that belongs and it goes somewhere else. But the word of God is absolute truth and God has given it to us for that purpose that we might know that his word is true. And so the purpose of God, a revelation of himself, a revelation of ourselves to ourselves, and a revelation of truth that we might have what we need as Christians in a fallen and hostile world. Well, what is the Bible? What is the hardware that makes up this book that we're holding within our hands? I mean, it just seems so big. There's so many pages there, and the binding is so heavy, and it seems like there's so much substance here. But what is the Bible actually made up of? Well, in a physical sense... The Bible is made up of 66 different books, Genesis being one of those books, and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and going on through all 66 of them until you come through until the book of Revelation. 66 books penned by, not authored, but recorded by over or close to 40 different men or women, authors, that penned these things and recorded them for us over a span of 1,500 years. 
The Bible in its original language was written in three different languages over three different continents, and the authors were people from all different walks of life. There were some people that were military leaders, soldiers, some were scholars, some were tax collectors, some were simple farmers, simpletons, some were shepherds, some were nobodies, some were great men, some were mighty kings, aristocrats, and educated people. All different walks of life God included in those chosen vessels that were used to record the things of Scripture. And so 66 books, 40 authors over that time. It's made up of two testaments, the Old Testament, 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, and then the New Testament, 29 books from Matthew all the way to through the book of Revelation. And so two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament, everything leading up to the life of Jesus Christ, and then the New Testament, everything from the birth of Christ and onward. The Bible is made up of seven different sections. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. The first section is what we would call the Torah, the, book, the books of Moses, the first five books, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Known by the Jews as the Torah or the Pentateuch, those books are grouped together and they are called the law because they're written by Moses. In fact, sometimes Jesus even uses the word Moses to describe those five books. When he says, have you not read that it was written in Moses? Speaking of those first five books. And so the Pentateuch or the Torah being the first segment. The second segment is known as the historical books. The books that simply record the history of God's nation, the Jews, and how they developed and became what they became in order to lay a context and a framework for the coming of Christ into the world. And so the historical books are from Joshua, the book immediately following Deuteronomy, all the way up through Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in the Old Testament. And they are historical in nature. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not inspired, and it doesn't mean that they're not spiritual. They absolutely are. There's worlds of spiritual interpretation and application and usefulness in our lives from those books, but they are literal history, things that happened in the world in which we live in times past. The third segment is known as the poetry, and that is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. All five of those books are known as the poetry books because they're poetic in their form and in their literary structure. And so those things, the workbook of worship, the book of Psalms that so many of us love, the book of the Proverbs of wisdom that have been laid out for us that we might learn and understand life. So much given to us in those books that are known as the poetry books. The fourth section is known as the prophets. And it goes from Isaiah all the way through Malachi. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all of those books all the way up through Malachi are the prophets, the men that God used to deliver truth to the nation and to the world in their day, truth that applied then and applies equally now. God's word breathed out, given to these men who then recorded it, and we have it in our Bible in those prophecies in the prophets. Then as we come to the New Testament, we come to the fifth segment, and that is the Gospels of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can lump 
acts into that section as well because it's kind of historical in nature. It's a continuation of what happened after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. But it lays out the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. It lays out for us the revelation of all that the Old Testament was preparing the world for in the coming of Christ. The whole Bible pointing to that time when Jesus the Savior would come, God in the flesh manifested and then crucified for our sins, raised for our justification, ascended and returning one day, all in the Gospels recorded for us. And then after that, number six, section six, you have the epistles. That's just a fancy word that means the letters. So the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, the letter that Peter wrote, or letters that Peter and Jude and James wrote, all of those letters that were recorded, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, all of those, those are the epistles, and they are primarily instruction. They're giving instruction, especially to you and I, the New Testament believer, as to what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know God, how to pray, how to walk, how to live this life that we've been called into, all that God has given to us, the understanding of Old Testament Scripture, all of that tucked into the epistles, the letters that's been laid out for us. And then finally, number seven, is the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, the prophecy of what will be in the end times, how God will close the pages and fold up human history laid out for us, in the apocalypse, in the book of Revelation. And so the substance of what the Bible is, 66 books, 40 authors, two testaments, seven sections, all truth, and all of it pointing to Jesus Christ. Well, you might be here tonight and you might be a skeptic, or someone who's unsure, and you say, well, how can we know with absolute surety that the book that we're talking about, and the book that we're studying from, that it actually comes from God, that it's inspired by God, that it's without error, and that it isn't just the byproduct of human mental ingenuity. How do we know that? What's the proof? How can I believe that what this is is actually what you're saying that it is? Well, first of all, and primarily, we can know it because God said it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I've already quoted the verse, but it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it's God-breathed, and that it's profitable for instruction, reproof, correction, in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped, perfected, and prepared for every good work. You say, well, isn't that circular reasoning a little bit? You know, the Bible that we're questioning and putting on trial is telling us that it's true. You know, isn't that like putting a man on the stand and asking him if he's telling the truth and he says yes, and yet the whole reason he's on trial is because we're trying to prove whether or not he's truthful or not, is it? Yeah, it might be a little bit of circular reasoning for us to just simply say that, well, the Bible declares that it's true, and so therefore it is. But God doesn't just leave it at that. He tells us that because what else is he going to do? He can't swear by anything greater than himself. And so he just speaks it forth as the truth that he is. And he says that the word is true. You can trust it. It's reliable. But he does give us more than that. He also gives us the evidence of prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah, inspired again by the Spirit of God, 
says this, and he's speaking for God in this. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, or examine, God says, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And so God says, I want you to consider two things in your quest to test the reliability of the scriptures. Number one is think about the things that have already happened in the world and in man's history. And think about the fact that I have spoken those things before they came to pass. And so as we read the Old Testament scriptures and we study and examine the prophecies of what God said would happen, and then we fast forward a little bit in history and we see how things played out, we can compare ancient history with recent history and we can say, wow, the Bible said this would happen this way and then it did happen this way. And that for us is an evidence that God knows what he's talking about. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to also examine and mark the prophetic things that haven't taken place yet. And then watch and see what happens in the world. And when those things come to pass, then you can know that I am God and I know the end from the beginning and I can declare truth before it unfolds. In chapter 46 of Isaiah, same book, in verse 8, God says this. He says, remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, God is calling us to stand up and be honest with ourselves. He says, bring it again to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And so we don't just stand upon the fact that God said, yes, my Bible is true, you can trust it. But we look at his track record, that God can dare to go into the realm of speaking for things that haven't, haven't happened yet. And then he can call us to examine the facts behind what he declares before it comes. And he says that you might know that I am God. And so the fingerprints of God's hand are upon his word in that the prophecy that he speaks forward comes to pass. Now, no other holy book can claim that kind of perfection and accuracy, but the word of God absolutely can. Everything that God has said would happen has happened. And everything that hasn't happened yet is sure to happen, and we know it because of the past that has happened. Not just prophecy, but we also know the Word of God is true because of the power that it possesses. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses, oh goodness, well, at least 12. There might be others around it, but God says this. He says that His Word is like a two-edged sword, that it is living and it is powerful and that it is sharp, that it divides, it pierces, and that it's effective. And one of the proofs that God gives to us that we can rely upon every word of Scripture is the power that's contained in it. That these are not dormant things that we simply pay attention to intellectually and just say, okay, well, I read the Bible or I attended Bible study or I've gone to church or I've studied or whatever. But when we let the word of God into our lives, it possesses a power to transform us. 
It brings conviction of our sins. It shows us the state of ourselves. It reveals God and truth in the universe. It opens our eyes to spiritual things. It changes us from the inside out, and it makes us become what it is in a way that we could never change ourselves, even with our greatest efforts. And so the power of God's word, when we let it into our lives, mixed with faith, is a proof and an evidence that it is what God declares it to be. And so God says it's true. His prophecy proves it true, and his power demonstrates it to be absolutely true within our lives. We also know it's true because of its congruency. Remember a little bit earlier I shared with you how there was 40 authors over a 1,500-year time span in three different languages on three different continents from every different walk of life, men that wrote down the things that are contained here in the Bible? You ever stop to consider that they all speak with absolute agreement and congruency on every topic that they touch? I mean, think about how miraculous that is, or marvelous. That with that spectrum of different people and backgrounds and cultures and influence, that they would all agree together on things concerning God, things concerning origins and what God has made, the institutions of God like man and marriage and gender and all the things that express what, what we are and what this world is. They agree with 100% accuracy, not one contradiction between themselves. I mean, sometimes we can't even agree with our spouses about whether the toilet paper should be rolled over the top or under the bottom. But yet these men with such varying backgrounds and, 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 and degrees of education and experience can come together on things without knowing each other or communicating with each other. And yet with perfect alignment can record things about God that are in perfect harmony with one another. The word of God absolutely true and proven to be so even from within and through our experience. The word of God, interestingly, not only... Do we know its purpose and what it is and the proof of its truth? But the Word of God is unique. The Bible is unique in that it is a document that is very much protected in a very powerful yet invisible way. You say, how is the Bible protected supernaturally or, invisible, or invisib invisibly? There's a concept in strategic communication communication that exists between um, soldiers out on a battlefield or between, you know, maybe a, 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 a military base and the, the generals or fighters out in the field. There's a concept in communication that's called Fourier transform. And you don't have to remember that, but you'll wish you did if you didn't. Because I heard it before, forgot what it was called, and I had a hard time finding it again. So write it down if, if you're into these things at all. It's called Fourier transform. And what it is is basically this. It's a principle that when you convey a message, you spread the message over the entirety of the bandwidth. You say, what are you talking about? It means this. It means that you give the message in such a way that if part of the message is intercepted, taken out or not received, or if there's hostile jamming and you only get the beginning of it or one half of it, or if there's an infiltration, something that corrupts a part of the message, that you're able, with the accurate parts of the message, to reconstruct the part that was lost, jammed, or corrupted. It's called Fourier Transform. And it's a way of getting all of a message across in hostile situations. You say, well, what does that have to do with the Bible? Have you ever wondered 
why God doesn't just have a little section of the Bible called marriage. And you would turn to marriage chapter 1, and everything that the Bible has to say about marriage would just be written in that section of Scripture with perfect clarity, and you'd get the whole picture all at once. Or grace. Okay, where's, where's the grace book, which just highlights grace and just tells us everything there is about grace? Or sin, or whatever that is. You say, well, God doesn't do that. It's kind of like, if you want to really understand something, you've got to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You've got to read some Psalms. You've got to get into the Proverbs. You've got to hear what Paul said. And you build this picture of the whole thing. You say, why is God like that? It's Fourier transform. He anticipated that we would be in a place where people would want to corrupt his word, where there would be hostile jamming, where there would be things intercepted and taken out. And what God has done is he's given us his word in such a way that if we don't have the whole thing, let's say you were on an island and you only had the Old Testament. Well, with the Old Testament, you can construct the entire New Testament because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. At the same time, you could be on that same island and you could have just a New Testament. And with the New Testament, you could put together the entire Old Testament. Why? Because the New Testament is nothing more than the Old Testament revealed. And so you could take a page out of the Bible and yet not corrupt or take away from its message. That's a way that God built protection and integrity into the message that's before us. It's free or transformed. It's protected. It's also protected in this most amazing way, is that unless an individual is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God himself, the Bible is absolutely impossible to understand, interpret, and apply. It can't be done. Paul says that in these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I want you to think about what Paul says here, how it applies to this concept of the word being protected. He says, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? In other words, nobody knows you like you know you. What man knows the things that are going on inside himself except for that person himself? Nobody knows us like we know ourselves. He says, even so, the things of God, now when we're talking about the things of God, we're talking about the Bible, right? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. In other words, no one can really know God except God, just like no one can really know you except you. But, or now, Paul says in verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, why? that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And here's the protection, verse 14. But the natural man, that is, man that does not have the Spirit of God living inside of him. It's man who's not in a relationship with God. Man who's alienated from God, separated from God in sin, the natural man, receives not the things of the Spirit of God. He can't receive them. He hears them, but they make no sense. Why? 
their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Now, I can testify firsthand the truth of what Paul is saying right here. Because before I opened my heart to Jesus Christ, in my before Christ lifespan, ages 0 through age 19, whenever I sought to read, interpret, and understand the Bible, the conclusion that I came to every time is that this is pure foolishness. When I saw someone living for the things of God that professed faith in the Bible, I labeled them in my mind as a fool. How could you live for this? How could you trade your whole life? How could you abstain from things that are a pleasure and a joy to all of humanity in order to follow the dictates of a book that you may or may or not be able to prove? And it was pure foolishness to me that anyone would live this way. And whenever I would read it, that foolishness would just frustrate me. A man throws seed on the ground. A man puts his staff in the sea and the sea opens up. This stuff is outrageous. And yet you're giving your whole life up for this? And it made no sense to me. There was nothing. It was death. But when I, in my own experience, by the grace of God, came to the point where it was either God or suicide, and I said, God, if you're real, I want to know you, and I'll do anything you tell me to do, even if you want me to be monastic and shave my head and wear a barbed wire robe. I'll do it if you're true. And I opened my heart to God, and I said, God, I need to know. And it was then that I opened up, and it came to Romans 1.1. And God, the Holy Spirit, came into my life. And on that day, like a light bulb... As I read the word of God, it made sense to me. Why? Because the spirit of God came into my life, opened up the scriptures, and gave reason and sense to them so that I could understand. And I knew it. This is different. And it was alive. And it made sense. And it applied to today. It wasn't antiquity. It wasn't foolishness. It was powerful and it was real. And so God has built protection into his word and that without the Holy Spirit, it's pure foolishness. And so the person who's skeptical, the person who's hostile, they approach the scriptures, but they are blind. They totally have no legs and no feet. And so they give up like I did. I threw the Bible at the wall until the time that I was willing to open my heart to God. And by his grace, he didn't throw me into a wall and say, yeah, you had your chance. But he gave me a spirit. And he allowed me to see that the things that he said are true, sound, powerful, and everything that I could ever desire or ever need. The word of God absolutely protected. We're going to stop there tonight. I told you that we'd get into an introduction of Genesis, but our introduction to the Bible went a little bit further uh, in time than I had anticipated. And so we'll lump the introduction to Genesis in with the first couple of words of it that we study next week. But by way of closing... And don't turn me off yet, because I have one more thing I want to say to you tonight that's probably the most important thing I'll say tonight to you. It might be. The way that we're going to approach the book of Genesis is that we're going to take our time in the first 11 chapters. Genesis really breaks into two halves, and they're not equal in, 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 uh, in um, text. The first section or segment is chapters 1 through 11, and that has to do with origins, creation, creation of man, the fall of man, the flood, the development of nations, all of those, the origins of things. And it takes time, and it's important. We'll get into why and all that next week when we uh, get into the book a little bit. And then the second half will be chapters 12 through 50. And we'll probably spend about an equal amount of time in those two sections. 
So we'll go slow through the first 11 chapters, and then once we hit chapter 12, we'll pick up the pace and move through the rest of the book as we get into the origin of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and, and all the rest. You know, So that's the way in which we're going to uh, approach our study of the book of Genesis as we do it. But in closing tonight, I just want to encourage and exhort and challenge you guys concerning the importance of foundation as it relates to our faith, our belief, and our walk with God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 24 through 27, and I want to read it to you. Jesus said these words. He said, Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And then he leaves off his sermon. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's been speaking for several minutes or hours or through several chapters of recorded scripture. And he ends his sayings that way. And he talks to us concerning the importance of foundations. And so as we begin a study of Genesis and a study of the Bible from the very beginning, I'll challenge you concerning the importance of your own spiritual foundation. The book of Genesis relates to every other part of the Bible, and it touches every part of our spiritual life. And so I'll ask you, I'll beseech you, I'll beg you to open your heart to God and to say, God, I want the foundation of my faith and everything that it touches to be sound and secure, and I need to hear from you and all that you have to say to me through these words. Open my understanding. Soften my heart. Give me faith and understanding to be able to receive the things that you have for me and approach the book of Genesis wanting a stronger foundation for your own faith and spiritual life. And the other thing I'll say in closing and in closing, and even so that Ashley and Mike, you guys can come on up. The Bible talks about the doctrine in the New Testament of the laying on of hands. You say, well, what does that have to do with our introduction to the Bible or our study of you know, why the Bible's important or laying a foundation in our spiritual life. When the Apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus for the first time, he came down to a river and he found a group of disciples there, a number of them, just 12. There was no church at the time. It was just a group of people that gathered together and would sing and, and discuss scripture. And they believed, and yet as Paul talked to them, he realized that there was something that was missing in them. There was some dynamic, there was a spiritual force or power that was absent from their lives. And it caused them to ask the question Paul did to these 12, and he said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they answered by saying, we haven't even heard whether or not such a thing exists. We really don't even know what you're talking about. And Paul inquired, he said, well, then tell me, what's the foundation? Where, you know, where does your faith come from? And they explained, well, we know about John the Baptist and you know, these types of things, but what, what's your thing? And Paul explained to them the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says that he laid his hands on them, and he prayed for them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
And their spiritual life was transformed from that moment onward, and the church in Ephesus became one of the most powerful and effective churches in the New Testament era. Paul spent more time there, consequently, than he did in any other place. He spent three years there giving them the word of God because there was such a hunger. The reason I say that to you is this. is because even here in this church, and we're a church that we, you know we love the Bible. It's the central thing. People said, you're having church on VBS week? Yes. We're, we're not giving up Bible study for anything. We hold fast to the word co- completely and absolutely. But there isn't a week that goes by that someone doesn't say to me, you know, I read the Bible, but I don't understand it. I read it, but I'm not getting it. It isn't until I come in here that I receive, or I need to hear it on the radio. And when I hear that, there's something inside me says, no, 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 that's not good. There's something that's wrong, if that's the expression. Because when God gives us the Holy Spirit, it brings the Word of God to life. There's something that happens. And so right now, here tonight, as we begin the study of Genesis, I want to ask you, is that you? Are you a person that says, well, I read the Bible, but when I read it, I don't understand it. It's like reading a foreign language. Or honestly, it kind of is like that foolishness to me. Until I hear it interpreted and hear, I, hear it taught and explained, I don't really understand it. It might well be that there's an element of the Holy Spirit's power in your life that's missing. And the Bible talks about having, being prayed for and asking the Holy Spirit to come in in a supernatural way. And so tonight, as we close the service here, Ashley's going to sing, I believe she's going to sing just the song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. And up in the front of the church, the pastors that are here tonight, the elders that are here tonight, even if you're here tonight and you're a person that you know that you've received the Holy Spirit and that the Word of God makes sense to you, then I want you to come forward and be here to pray for people. And if you're a person that you say, I just want some, just pray for me. Would you just pray that the Spirit would open my understanding, that the entrance of God's Word would bring light in my life and that I might understand it and know it in a fuller way. Don't be ashamed of that. But the Bible says that we're to pray one for another in this way. Come forward as we're singing the song and let us just lay hands and pray for you. Just in simplicity of faith, asking God to give to you the Holy Spirit. And we believe that just like Paul in the book of Acts in the, in the city of Ephesus, just like it talks about in Hebrews when it talks about the power of laying on of hands, we believe that God is going to answer and hear that prayer. And so Ashley's going to close us in song right now. The pastors will be up here, and we just would have you to pray, and then we'll close the service out in prayer uh, as we normally do. And so, Ashley, would you? And pastors, would you come? And if you feel so inclined, everybody can stand and just come forward as you feel led of the Holy Spirit to do so. Mm-hmm.